Welcome back to The Greatness Blueprint. I'm Luke Austin, and this week I had the pleasure of speaking with Elliot Hoyt. Elliot was born and raised in the UK, making his way to the US to play football for Boise State. He is now the owner and founder of THD Real Estate here in Boise, Idaho. Shout out to the THD marketing team for hosting me in their office studio this week for the shoot. It was a blast getting to work with the team and do a podcast in person with Elliot. The goal of our conversation was to go a layer deeper and discover what it takes to truly be successful. Not just the service level steps, but the character traits developed only through experience. Expect to learn why more money doesn't bring more happiness, the importance of quick decision-making, Elliot's view on the most important thing for people starting their own business, and much more. It was a great conversation. I enjoyed it, and I know you will too. Episode 19 of The Greatness Blueprint starts now. You might be known as the founder of THD Real Estate. You've been a top 30 under 30 realtor. You've had a lot of success at Boise State, winning football championships. A lot of those achievements, accomplishments are amazing, but we're not going to talk too much about those today. I want to focus more on some of the tough times that led you to those successes. Think of someone like a Tiger Woods, a Michael Jordan. They went through a lot in their early life that paved the way for who they are, the accomplishments that they had. And if you look at a lot of the world today, there's this sense of entitlement, right? There's this social media view of the world where someone has the nice watches, the nice cars, and you don't see all of the tough times that went into creating that success. And that's what we want to peel back a little bit today and focus. So to kick things off, I want to focus on your early life before you got into business, before you got into real estate, what paved the way for who you are today and start with your early childhood growing up in the UK. So I'm, I'm glad you're touching on stuff other than the successes to an extent today. Cause I feel like you hit the nail on the head. Everything we see on social media, a lot of what we see on social media and a lot of the stuff we talk about is the successes and yeah, there's a lot behind it. So I'm glad we touched on this today. So yeah, going, going back to the, to the very, very start. Yeah. My name's Elliot. I was born in uh, I was born in a, a, a city called Plymouth in the UK, and I grew up mainly in Tavistock, the town of Tavistock, which is about twenty minutes north of Plymouth. I think it's more like forty minutes drive nowadays because the growth has grown so much, traffic's getting worse. But yeah, I, I grew up there, you know, until I was eighteen when I moved to America. So yeah, early early childhood, I would have said, you know, middle-ish class family. Didn't have everything, but didn't really go with without stuff that we needed. But it was always a choice of this or that. It was never everything, if that makes sense. It was never you got to pick everything. I did have cousins that I was sometimes jealous of because I think they got a lot more than we did. But looking back at it, it definitely helped make made me who I am today. So yeah, I, I started off very humble beginnings, really. My mother's been a, an English teacher her almost her entire adult life. And my dad's been in retail sales most of his life too. So they've been, for the most part, the same career type people. So I think there's definitely some perseverance that was taught to me there because they've always done the same thing for the most part. Um, I have a younger sister who is crazy to say she's 25 now. So she's five years younger than me, grew up with a little sister. She was born obviously five years after me. So the first five years of my life were as an only child trying to figure out my way. I was always, I was always pushing the limits, even from being a child. I was never, I don't want to say I was naughty, so to speak, but I definitely pushed the limits. And then my sister came along and I probably grew up a little bit because I had to be a big brother. I think that kind of gives you some more responsibility. And, and me and my sister are quite different people too. My parents would definitely say that. So I think I, I think now looking back as an adult, 
there's a lot I learned from my sister about being more stoic. So I've always been a little bit more out there pushing the limits and she's always been a little bit more reserved. So I think I didn't want to stand out as always being the crazy child. So she definitely probably reeled me in to some extent, not, not directly, but just by me thinking, ah, I can't be considered that one kid always. So, so yeah, that, that, was, that was my childhood. I mean, yeah, I don't know what else to expand on. It was relatively mundane in a good way. There was nothing crazy that happened. My parents have, have been married for, you know, since before I was born and still are married. So I had a good, good basis. I'm from a small town where people don't really do a lot. Doesn't mean they're not important. Doesn't mean that what they do isn't important. They just, people don't tend to leave and don't really go on to do crazy, crazy things. So I didn't really have a basis for doing anything that was necessarily record-breaking or groundbreaking. So yeah. Yeah. So going from that humble beginning to kind of saying, you know what, I have dreams of doing more. When did that kick in? Was it when you started to participate in sports in your early childhood, was there some other catalyst that said, you know what, I see that this is the environment I'm growing up in, but I have desire for more. I think sports was always an outlet for energy more than anything. I, I remember my mom signed me up for rugby when I was like four years old. I think that was just a way of her getting me out of, out of the house for a few hours on a weekend. But that did grow into obviously, oh, well, I'm actually good at, you know, I've always been maybe very well I've probably always been pretty very good at most of the sports I've played so I always realized that there was upside to it but it was more of an outlet than anything and as I grew older it became something I was oh, okay I could probably take this somewhere but I think I've always had a desire to do more I've always had a, a, a why not mindset and I, I wasn't always really exposed to you know groundbreaking things that people were doing but you know I watched enough tv and you know before social media is around to kind of understand oh there's things out there i mean why not me why can't i go and do something a little bit different to everyone else so yeah yeah, yeah if i think back to my own childhood experience i was one of those guys who was often overlooked right i wasn't the coach's kid so i didn't get the quarterback position on the football team i wasn't the pitcher i was actually the center snapping the ball right <laughs> and that and that innate sense of Somebody else got handed something and I didn't, but I'm going to keep working my ass off until I get there has always driven me throughout my life. So as we got to middle school and high school where, you know, people weren't given that position any longer, my work ethic that continued to pave the way from when I was center onward really helped propel me into everything I do today. Was there anything like that in your life to say, you know what, there's a little chip on my shoulder or there's something extra that, that dro drove you through that part of your life? I think I've always been physically gifted yeah. for the most part i mean i'm you know i'm a large fast for my size kind of guy i always have been so i definitely stood out for probably the right reasons athletically so i can never say that really i was overlooked for my athletic ability but i think on the other end of the spectrum almost it's always been i've always realized that i've had i had physical gifts and I was always trying to push the nth degree. I was always told, I've been told a lot of times, just not just athletically, but in some of my ambitions, business-wise or academically, you can't do that. That's crazy. You don't do that. So I've, I've always been fueled by people telling me that either I can't do it or that the, the chances of it happening are slim to none. You know, I was always told that by many people, you're not going to play for a top 25 Division One football program. No one's done that coming out of England, and that's not going to be a thing. So that, from you know my later teen years, drove me for sure. And and just there's lots of just little instances I think of of just you know being told that you know, that doesn't make sense, you can't do that. And I'm like, all right, watch me. Why not? You know what I mean? I've never been afraid to fail. I honestly have never been afraid to fail because if you do fail, what you're in the same position you were before for the most part, you know what I mean? So my whole life, I've always tried to push the boundary. So I think I've, I gained a chip on my shoulder just by people telling me that that won't happen. You can't do that. Yeah. That's what drove me, I think. Gotcha. So I've heard this concept of there's kind of two ways that motivate people. One is this desire to achieve. 
there's this other fuel of trying to run away from something that you fear. And for you, it sounds like you didn't have that fear of failure, but maybe you wanted to continue to prove people wrong. And so instead of trying to say, you know what, I'm going to run away from this, I'm going to run towards something that I know people think I can't. Is that kind of what fueled you? Yeah, yeah, I think so. It's, it's comfort zone stuff, right? I mean, once you achieve something, a lot of people will end up saying, oh, that was good enough. Like that was a hard enough risk. I took that and now I got there. I've, I only ever seem to feel comfort being uncomfortable, if that makes sense. So yeah, there's never been a time where I've kind of pushed towards something and figured out, okay, that was enough. I need to take a break. I always seem to find myself trying to do more things i mean that's really i think sounds kind of corny but that kind of journey is really where a lot of the fun is i think more than the actual result for a lot of people and myself yeah. for sure so yeah so you're growing up playing rugby at four yep <laughs> when did you start playing american football and, and why did you get into it i didn't start playing football until i was 16 actually yeah my dad played so my dad actually played in in the states my dad's english but he he uh, played two years at junior college in Chicago and then played two years at University of Akron in Ohio, came back to England, then ended up actually playing in what was basically the first year of NFL Europe. It was called the World League back then. So I had a background in it and that was before I was born. And many, many years went by when my dad wasn't involved in the sport after I was born. And I got to about 14 or 15 and and, and managed to kind of find a local team that had an adult men's team, but not, not like a youth or junior side because it's all club sports back home or club football back home we don't have school football didn't have it until the last you know probably few years so i found a local team my dad ended up coaching there i kind of got he got back into coaching football was enjoying it and then we actually ended up i think two years after that finding a team that was two hours north of where we lived a club team and called the bristol aztecs at the time and that's when i got in at about 16 i started playing football at the age of 16 so that's how i got in i just bugged my dad enough i said like, hey we need to i want to play football this is yeah. what i want to do so yeah was it something that you wanted to to make him proud or was football something that you realized in innately to you that it was a dream you wanted? I think a, a little bit of both. Yeah. I think me, making my dad and my parents proud is definitely, all, I mean, that's always been a, a thing. But I think football was just selfish. I want to play football more than anything. But there was a little bit of legacy there too. Obviously, you want to try and continue that. I think my dad's football career didn't necessarily end the way that he wanted it to. So I think, you know, that he probably distanced himself to an extent to kind of move on. That was his way of moving on from that chapter. And I was always compelling him to come back towards it. And it worked out well in the end, I think, for all of us. But yeah, I was I was always I just wanted to play football. Like it wasn't a sport that was very easily easy to access back in England, you know, a decade ago or two decades ago as much as it is now. And I I, I wanted to play football. So yeah. Yeah. If you look back on it, I know there's people who through their life they look to go after a sport that their parents want them to do, right? They get into football, they get into basketball, their dad wanted them to be a basketball player and they get toward the end of their career and they say, you know what, maybe that wasn't my dream. And they have this crisis within themselves. Did you feel that way looking back on it? Do you think you would have rather played rugby or do you think you made the right decision? No, I, I, those days? I wouldn't change anything. Yeah. Rugby doesn't have a whole lot of verticality to leverage the sport to do other things if that makes sense whereas football obviously in the states you can get a scholarship pays for school that's a massive one for a lot of people right away rugby is either you go pro or go bust basically there's not really much of an in-between for the most part i would never change my decision at all i've still got guys i played with that are playing professional rugby now as much as i have guys that are playing uh, professional football i don't have any resentment or any regrets for any decisions i made in that regard but what i will say is by the end of my football career, it I you know I kind of had to make a decision as far as what I was going to do with the future. And football really 
there's an element of fun that's taken out of football when it becomes basically a job even more so now because you know if you're in top, if you're in top 25 especially division one football this nil the name image and likeness they're getting paid now a lot of the guys some of them are making seven figures many are making six figures make and they're all making more than i'm sure i was back then as far as my stipend check goes and when when a sport becomes a job or relatively speaking a job it does change the way you approach things and there's a different mentality so i do know that i was very much burned out on football by the end which was really tough to deal with not the burnout but what's tough to deal with is when you've loved the sport your entire life i watched football before i played it when you've loved the sport your entire life and then it's not fun anymore there's aspects of it that aren't fun that's a hard thing to overcome really hard and there was definitely a lot of soul searching i think during that time where football wasn't as fun where i was like wow this is something i work for my whole life and there's elements of this that are not as fun as I was anticipating. That's a hard mental place to kind of get over because it's always been a dream. And when the dream isn't exactly what you thought it would be, that's a that's definitely a poignant moment, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Let's unpack that a little bit. So you you were all Europe, right? You mm-hmm. you played in, in Europe and then you decided to come to Boise State, got a scholarship offer. You came here and you were kind of on the bottom of the barrel, right? Going yeah. from the, the best in Europe down to, I think it was six string starters. Yeah. Whatever. Six uh, string. Six, six, six string. Yeah, I was, right? I was still at the bottom of the, the whiskey barrel. Yeah. And I, I mean, I was in the exact same position as you. I was fifth string on the depth chart and I had to work my way up. So I can, I can tell you that I know exactly how it feels. It's tough, right? Yeah. Going from the best player to the worst. Yeah. Not necessarily worst, but the most counted out, I would yeah. say. Right? So what was your mentality to go through that in those early days coming over when you're not the man anymore and you have to recognize that and work through that so the first i came in in spring of 2012 so i gray shirted so i signed for that season but didn't come until late came in and you know, i was like fifth or sixth string i mean you know a division war program that big you've got 20 plus d linemen so there's a lot of people there obviously to kind of you know, figure out where you sit and that first year or that first spring was such a huge shock because I trained with my high school rugby team basically and it, it was great, but it didn't touch the level of exertion just of practicing and training was nothing like division one football. I never even played high school football and high school football is a notch above training wise what rugby is back home. So it was a complete culture shock, both off the field and on the field, but on the field. Yeah. I didn't know. I didn't know what was going on. I was in survival mode. I wasn't in thrive mode. You, didn't, you know, they talk about thriving and surviving. I was in survival mode and not by choice, just because I was trying to figure out what the hell was going on. And it took, me basically a year and a half to two years before I was actually in a position to probably be a contributing member of the team. And halfway through that, they, you know, they they almost got rid of me or didn't want me to be around because I wasn't developing at a pace that would help the team, basically. And that was one of the hardest moments of my life, actually, I think. Before it got to the point where football actually wasn't as fun as it had been, was understanding that maybe this wasn't for me. That was a tough point, too. That was my redshirt freshman year. But obviously managed to overcome that. So, yeah. So you, it sounds like you maybe you hit a rock bottom. What what did you do to say, you know what, I'm at a point where I need to go one of two directions. Either I'm, I'm done with my football career and they don't want me back or I have to make a change. What was that trigger? Yeah, I remember Coach Pete sat me down towards the end of the season. It was just before he actually ended up leaving. It was at midpoint of the season in my redshirt freshman year. So I already redshirted one year. I was still on scout team for the second year, my redshirt freshman year. And he sat me down. He's like, hey, you know, you, you, you work hard but you're just not developing at the pace we need for you to be contributing. He basically said, you know, you might want to look at other options and we all know what that means, right? And things have changed, I think, over the years, what they can say and can't say to you, but I knew what they meant by that. But he did say, you know, it it was more my position coach, I think, than him. And he said, I want you to prove him wrong, basically. But it was still on the peripheral when you were told, basically, you suck. 
that's not something you can forget. And I remember that that hit me really hard. But what I decided was in that moment, like you need to basically drag me off this field and tell me that I'm not going to do it. I'm going to keep pushing. And I was my goal was just to be the best scout team player I could be. So I remember just going out to every practice and just trying to do my absolute best and just learn and just take it day by day. Instead of looking at the long picture and the, and the long term, I was just take it day by day. And obviously everyone knows Coach Pete ended up getting the job at Washington. Coach Harson comes in. They still try to get rid of me even at that point. I think there's still some coaches left around that probably don't want me around because I wasn't, you know, giving them what they needed. We ended up having um we ended up having one of like one of the the they brought in the the new freshman class came in i got jumped in the depth chart again by a freshman he ended up quitting because he didn't get to to the part of the depth chart he wanted to one guy broke his leg within three months i went from basically fifth string to second string and in, in, in division one college football nowadays how many reps there are i was playing 40 plus percent of the snaps so i went from being basically at the bottom to a contributing player within the space of three months so yeah, I just I made a decision. I was, I'm just gonna stick around. You need to kill me basically if you want me gone. So yeah, yeah. It's fair to say you <laughs> you had that opportunity given to you because other people the longevity wasn't mm-hmm. there, and just by you sticking through that, you then had the opportunity to go and and earn that yeah. that right to play. Yeah, yeah. It's and, just outlasting people, right? And I think that's part of it in in football or anything. It's can you put in the time for more than just a couple days or a, a year? Right? Is it something that you can do for a long period of time? So. Talk to us about kind of where you ended up at the end of your football career and, and looking back and reflecting on it. Yeah, I remember it was, I think it was October of 2016. I was, I had one class because I, I was, you know, a senior and I, I drug it out deliberately. So I only had one class my my last semester, my last year of football. And we had a, my, my communications class, it was like my senior thesis paper, whatever the heck it is. And uh, I was doing luxury sales. It was about luxury sales. I'd always been interested in, in sales and, and whatnot. So I remember, I remember I went to the Lyle Pearson dealership and they sell Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Volvo, Land Rover, Pyron cars. I remember I went and interviewed one of their salesmen. And that was part of my kind of class thing. I was trying to get some quotes, basically, to put together sources for my paper. And I remember he asked me, you know, what are you doing after football? And this time in October, the season's almost over. I didn't really know what I was going to do. I know I knew at that point I didn't want to play football anymore. No matter, even if even if there was opportunities with football to play in the NFL, and this is coming from, you know, I got I think I have twenty plus teammates. I probably play I play with that are still in the NFL now. Many that I played against to be in the NFL and to have a career and actually have a chance. You you either need one of two things. If you're two of these things, you're great. You either need to be very 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 good, or you need to love the game. I was not good enough, and I didn't love the game enough. So I had to make a decision there and then this isn't what I want to do. Rewind a little bit, going back to the car dealership. So I've already made the decision, hey, football isn't for me. Uh, Bob was the guy I interviewed. I knew him through a, a mutual friend. And he goes, what are you doing after football? And I said, well, I don't know. I know I'm not playing football, but I don't know. Long story short, within a week, I got a call from the general manager. asked if I'd interview for a sales position. And I, I was offered the job and they held it for me until January at the end of the season. So luckily, on a whim, I ended up with the job. What's funny is that general manager who kind of reached out to me we actually just closed on a home for him, I guess, six, seven years on now. Wow. I represented him on the sale and the buy of his home, and they were quite hefty, hefty sales too. So it's just weird how yeah, it all kind of comes together, yeah. man. Yeah, it's relationships for sure. So, yeah. 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 Wow, that's, that sounds very similar to my experience because I, you know, you get towards the end of your college football career, and you get to the point where, you know, I'm not going to go pro. I'm probably not good enough. Maybe I don't have the desire. Like you said, I was burned out too. I could have probably gone and played CFL, not NFL. I could have done something smaller, but I didn't have the desire anymore. 
looking back on it, I do have some regrets of not giving it a try. Do you have those same regrets? There's always a what if, but from a curiosity perspective, it's like, well, what if I'd gone to a couple camps and seen, because I, I I mean, I know I look at it, I probably should give myself some more credit. I played against guys that are in the NFL or had good careers in the NFL that weren't that good in college. I'm like, I actually beat you several times one-on-one, like several times. So yeah, maybe there was something. So there's a curiosity side of the wonders, but I don't have any regrets because I'm, I truly think I'm doing right now what I was supposed to do. Like I have more impact and I get more joy out of what I do every day here with my team and my people than I think I could get playing football. I truly believe that. Like hand on my heart, believe it. So I have no regrets. Life's just a series of decisions and you try and make the best you can and you shouldn't have regrets. Like yeah. it is what it is. It turned know? out well. Yeah. So you end up getting this job at the car dealership and it sounds like you're still trying to figure yourself out, right? Even though you have a job, you don't necessarily know what you want to do long term. Talk us through that next phase for you where, you know, for the first 20 plus years of your life, athletics has been your identity. And now you're trying to find your new identity in this new place. The, the, the first month was rough. So if anyone that was living in Idaho remembers 2016 to 2017 winter was the, right, the worst on record. There was like 58,000 feet of snow. It was depressing. So I'm at this car dealership. So I'm working for the Porsche and Mercedes brands as a salesman. And there's, uh, I think, three or four other sales guys there at the time. They'd all been there for a period of time, for quite a long period of time. They were kind of tenured. I was going through a lot of training and stuff, and it it was bleak. I mean, the weather was horrible. People weren't coming in to buy cars when there's eight feet of snow on the ground, much less expensive cars. So I remember the first probably month, two months were tough. Didn't get any sales or anything because no one was coming out because the weather was bad. I'm just sat there. I'm on basically like a like a stipend the first couple of months because it's a hundred percent commission. There's no like W two salary. So I remember I brought home that first two months like maybe three grand, maybe something like that, whatever the comp plan was, and that obviously f- for me at that time was you know not a lot of money. So that was tough, just from a financial perspective, and also the fact I was sat there like that was a time where I was like. Man, I could just be out there playing football, playing rugby, kind of like I was before. Yeah. At, least at least I was good at that, and maybe right. that would have paid me. So that that was a tough transition the first few months. But then when the spring came around and the weather got better and people were out, things took off pretty quick for me. And I realized, oh, I actually have a gift of, you know, learning products, which was, you know, you, selling Porsche and Mercedes is different to selling other vehicles. You do have to know the products. I had, an, I, had, I had a knack to learn products relating to people, and I was good with people. I can make relationships with people. I was like, oh, I'm actually kind of good at this. Things took off, and, you know, by the end of that year, I think I was number two or number three out of 20-plus salespeople on the campus as far as sales went. So I was like, oh, I, I think I could be good at this, you know. Yeah. So. That's amazing. So you, you're you a brand ambassador, or is that the second yes. part of this? So, so Porsche – Porsche, Porsche call their salespeople that get the accreditation. You can sell them without having the accreditation, but yeah. I became a Porsche brand ambassador. So that's like the it's like a gold star of like Porsche gotcha. salespeople. And then I was a Mercedes salesperson as well, certified in that. So brand ambassador was what Porsche called their kind of upper salespeople. Gotcha. And the Mercedes was just, you know, sales rep basically. So, gotcha. Yeah. There's this great quote from Ed Catmull, who is one of the founders of Pixar, right? That creates all these animated movies. When he was going through a transition in his life before he started Pixar, he knew that he wanted to be the best in the world at something, but he didn't know what it was. What are your thoughts on on that, right? Did that resonate with you to say, you know what, I want to be the best in the world at something? For a long time, I thought it was football. Now I'm going to be the best car salesman and best brand ambassador and just keep chasing that next thing. 
Yeah, that was that's always been my mindset. I mean, even from a young age, I used to work at uh, Tesco, which is a grocery store back home, and I used to wake up at like five or six a.m. I can't remember, and I used to. This was one in between high school and getting my scholarship for like six months. I used to wake up at five or six a.m. and I used to go and unload the first truck that came in with groceries for like produce, which are big these big heavy like green baskets you put into the fridge and that and whatnot. And I was always like this. I was back then. I even I, I was probably making like five pounds something an hour which is like basically six bucks an hour or seven bucks an hour or whatever and i was i don't care about the money i don't care about this i'm going to be the best person unloading this truck i'm going to be efficient and quick so i've always approached everything with that mindset same with 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 rugby football to the best of my ability at least i, I was never going to be you know aaron donald or whatever but i was going to put my best effort forward to be the best version so yeah i definitely chase it in every aspect same with the sales when i got to lyle pearson to to work for the mercedes and porsche brands i'm going to be the best salesperson. But while I was there, I realized when I was trying to be the best salesperson that the next step was, you know, you, okay, you can be the best sales manager, you can be the best general manager, you can be the best like principal owner of a dealership. But I realized that the verticality to get to those was going to take much, much, much longer than I felt was reasonable for my life. You know, just the, the step from becoming a salesperson to a manager was probably a five-year kind of thing. From that to a general manager was a 10-plus-year kind of thing. To becoming an owner could take your whole life. And I realized that if I wanted to become that great best owner of a car dealership, it, it, it would be longer than I was willing to give. So that's what kind of led me to real estate in a roundabout way. So. Yeah. Yeah, and I know you, as you kind of went through that cycle at the car dealership, there were some ups and downs, right? I think at one point you were driving Uber. Yeah, so it was actually in between, in between. So I, I did really well out of college. I, I made six figures in my first year out of college selling cars. Most people would be like, that's awesome. And it, it was, do not get me wrong. We can get to it later. Money's not everything for me. It's a tool. But it's not everything. So I was like, great. But it was more about the achievement. So I ended up leaving the dealership in the process of getting my real estate license. I didn't sell anything real estate-wise from being licensed in July to closing the first transaction in March of the following year. So I drove Uber for several months in that that kind of window. And that was probably the rock bottom of my life at that point. That was the rock bottom of my life. And that's no disrespect to anyone that does gig jobs. That's just a symptom of the of the underlying thing. But that was definitely the most challenging period of my life, for sure. And it could have gone one or two ways. And they were polar opposites, you know? Yeah. So talk us through that rock bottom. What? When did you realize, you know, you were at rock bottom? And what did you do to get through that period? I think I remember I, remember I was at rock bottom. It was, I think it was in November, November of 2018. I had $17 in my bank account. I had like 10 grand of debt from various like credit cards and other kind of things. And I had no Uber rides that night. I had very few. Got home like late at night and just laid in bed and cried. And I was just like, what have I done? Like I've made this decision to, and this, I was 20, I would have been 25 at the time, I suppose. 25, I think. You know, you've, you've quit. You've stopped doing the one thing you've done your whole life that you're good at. You got a great job and you were making really good money. And you did that and quit that. And now you're pretending to be a real estate agent and you're broke and you've got no money and you're in debt. That was when I was like, that was a rock bottom for me. When I realized that, I was like, okay, well, you can either keep pushing or you can go back to the dealership or maybe try and find another job. And I don't remember, it's kind of crazy, honestly, for like a month, two months in between that moment and actually getting the first deal and the first client under contract, a little bit hazy in a way. I do know, though, I was a week away from 
actually packing it in for good and going somewhere else and doing something before that deal closed. I remember I said that week, okay, I'm going to start looking for jobs. And that week, the very first people I met at an open house became clients and reached out and wanted to go and buy something and sell something basically. And it turned around from that point. So I was within probably five days of my life, maybe looking, well, definitely looking very different than it does now. Yeah. But I just kept going. I just persevered because I was like, well, I don't really know what else to do. So yeah. Did you have a support system during that time or was it something that you um, kind of just had to dig deep and my, my wife was supportive to a point, but I think she also, she looking back now, I can see why she, she was always being supportive, but she was highly, highly questioning of it because she was like, why the hell are you leaving this job you have? Like you're already doing better than most people 10 years older than you. And I think she wasn't necessarily on board to begin with, but I did a good job of hiding. I think my pain further down the line where things were really bad. So I don't think she necessarily knew the extent of how bad I really was feeling at that time. And she actually only found out when I mentioned it to some friends, I think last week, she didn't know about that night where I came home and just kind of had a breakdown. She didn't know until, and it's been six, seven years, six years now since then. So I don't think she really knew the extent of it. I had to hide it because I had to be strong because she's in law school. She can't really make a lot of money. It's on me. So I can't, I can't add that burden to her. You know what I mean? It's not, not fair. So yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting, interesting point. There's this rule called the rule of man where you never talk about your experiences in there, right? You just suppress it you push it to the side. You pretend it's not there. You act tough and it's kind of like fight club. You can talk about fight club, right? (laughs) And sounds like you experienced something similar, something that I've also gone through in my life where I've experienced these, these downs. Looking back, do you wish you would have opened up more about it to? I think, I think that I think we're more accepting of mental health nowadays yeah. and like going through those times. I mean, definitely in the last probably three, four years, it sounds arbitrary. I'm kind of throwing numbers. I feel anecdotally three, four years, it's been a lot more of a thing, especially with men. I probably wouldn't change it just because I don't want to change anything that's led me to where I'm at. But at the same time, I probably should have reached out to someone to get some help because I was not in a good place mentally. But it kind of made me who I am today. That doesn't mean that anyone out there that's struggling that you know maybe is listening to this at this point that is going through something shouldn't reach out for help. I think you should. It just I wouldn't change it because it made me who I am. But I think it's a lot more acceptable nowadays and I think we'd have a lot more people um, that would be doing better and candidly would be with us today that end up making a lot worse decisions when they go through situations because they didn't get help. So I'd much rather someone that was listening was struggling was confiding in people because you may not it's bigger than just getting advice that will help you a lot of people go through you know times where they don't come back from it you know yeah Yeah, i mean it fostered a level of grit in yourself right you took this bet on yourself you said i'm doing fine at this car dealership but i know that i can be doing more and i have bigger dreams so you take the leap and you go to real estate right so you get that first deal after you go through this really rock bottom part of your life a week away from going and finding another job moving whatever that ends up being and you get the deal Right. And that kicks you off into this next phase of your life where real estate kind of takes over. Walk us through that next phase. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the next phase, I mean, it was, <laughs> well, they don't tell you about going to real estate school to get your licenses. It doesn't teach you anything about how to actually really do deals or business. It's more a case of this is how you don't get sued, basically. So then I had to actually learn how to do real estate deals. But I've always been a sponge for knowledge. So I was already doing a lot of research to make sure I was surrounding myself with the right people that could give me information. I was reading enough information and, and relying on the resources I had. But that that next step really from March to 
the end of the year, you know, it went from being nothing to basically $9 million in sold volume, which is back then when the average price point was like 350 was a lot of real estate. So it was just a whirlwind. It was like drinking from a, from a fire hose quite literally because I was having a lot of people reaching out to me that I knew had relationships with, you know, trusted me and wanted to, you know, work with me to help them buy and sell, you know, the biggest asset of their life. And yeah, it was just, it was a whirlwind. I mean, it was just, I was learning constantly. Every day I was grinding, I was on my own. I didn't get an assistant um, to help me until August of that year. And they say, you know, around about back then, at least for the amount of volume, $10 million was kind of that point where you need to get an assistant. So I did get an assistant in the August of that year. But that time from pretty much March through to August of that first year in 2019 with my first deal was just craziness. I was just working nonstop, constantly, yeah. just craziness, you know. How did you build that confidence that you could do the deals, right? Because you're new to the industry. You just took a real estate school and you did you got your license, right? And you're ready to go. I feel like when you start something new like that, especially when the volume like you had was so high, there's this level of imposter syndrome, right? I'm doing these things. I haven't done it before, but I'm going to keep going. I, I'm confident in my own ability to learn on the fly. Did that get you through that time or was there a little bit of maybe? It, it, it was easier back then in a way than it is now. I know because my, my, my role was evolving, you know, damn near daily at this point here. But back then it was actually, it wasn't that bad because I didn't know what I didn't know. I was com I was just a confident twenty five year old. I just I knew that hey I'll figure it out. I've always been that way. I'll figure it out. That's if anyone was saying anything about me, Elliot will figure it out. Is what I probably say most people would say. So back then I didn't know what I didn't know. So I was just going through it. It's, it actually seems to get worse as time goes by. The imposter syndrome, whatever you want to call it, because back then I didn't know. So I just grind. I knew, I knew if I outworked other people and outworked myself and just pushed on myself, it would figure itself out. Back then there wasn't probably wasn't as many issues as there is now i'll be honest with you just within myself my myself talk in some ways you know yeah a little bit of a beginner's ignorance you might say yeah you just you don't know what you don't know so you just keep pushing through and you figure it out but as you become more educated you actually realize there's more gaps than you thought and that's when it can become kind of a little bit of a dark place in your mind sometimes you know yeah so as you jump into real estate what was the goal right was the goal money was the goal acumen like what was why did you jump into it the biggest thing when i was at a dealership i worked with especially on the porsche side and the average client's income i think was four hundred thousand dollars back then average i realized i wanted to be buying these cars not selling them and it wasn't just because of the money don't get wrong the money's great but it was more about look at what these people have done they're like you know doctors attorneys they were business owners they all have really cool stories i want to have a cool story not because i want to brag to people and be like oh I'm really cool, but like living a cool life is a cool thing to do. Like, why would you not want to have a fun, enjoyable life? And I think real estate really gave me the freedom to live that life and also create something. I've always been a creator. I wanted to create something that was meaningful and had impact. And that's what we're doing now. And, you know, I went from being an individual agent, I knew it was the first step to starting the team, to starting the brokerage that has an even bigger impact than you know, the team had previously. Um, it was always about just creating something special. That's really what it was for me for real estate. I knew with real estate, I could create something the way I wanted it to be. I could create something special. It was about creation. Don't get me wrong. The money's a byproduct of that at certain times, but it's not. The money's never, it's never, in the, it's never at the top of the list. It's definitely a thing. But it's never at the top of the list. Yeah. I think people often get that wrong, right? They think money will bring them happiness. And so they're chasing money. Um, and even to take that a step further back, if you get X, then X will bring happiness. This this sense that you're always chasing something that will then provide happiness versus trying to find happiness along the way. How do you think about that? Uh, it, it, it's it's right. I mean, money is money is a uh, a byproduct or a symptom of the actions, if that makes sense. And those actions have to be driven by something bigger than the pursuit of the money, right? So yeah, I think that 
if you have a dream or a vision or a goal, I mean, those are, that's really what should drive you. The money kind of comes secondary to that. It just, it's just not, it's not ever really been a thing. I, I can't really explain it other than that. It's just not, I've always been focused on the bigger thing. It's always been the bigger picture. It's okay. What does, what does this allow me to do? What does it allow me to create? Oh, cause I created this thing or I solved this problem. Now it's brought money. A lot of people, I think, chase after the money, right? And it's like, that's the first thing. So how can I make a lot of money? And they don't understand that basically you're paid or the money you make is in proportion to the difficulty of the problem you solve. So focus on what problems you can solve, not how much money can you make, and then go and find the thing that's going to pay you the most based on that. Try and solve the problem first. That's what I would say. You know, that's it's always about solving problems and creating things. Yeah. Yeah, and you had a lot of success as a real estate agent, right? You had a lot of big years. You were 30 under 30 real estate agent, but you still had this desire for more. You talked about you wanted to be a creator, right? You wanted to create something. And I know we talked about it at lunch about a month ago where you wanted this, you had this desire for a legacy, right? To, to impact more people. And that's why you said, you know what? Maybe real estate agent isn't what I want to do. I want to build this real estate brokerage. So talk about that transition from saying, maybe even before you got into the point where you wanted to create THD real estate, what drove you to make that decision? And what was that turning point mentally for you? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm still, I'm still fully producing as an agent. There's, there's things that I do differently as a brokerage owner, or I guess people call them CEOs. I won't call myself a CEO because I'm not big enough yet or founders. So I do add more to my plate. I'm still selling actively. So that's still a focus has been, but what I realized was time you can only leverage so much time i only have 24 hours in my day um so my ability to impact others through you know real estate sales as far as buyers and sellers while i still do that and can do that it's limited time-wise right so i was like okay well if i was to leverage other people's time i could grow this to have a bigger impact and we can do more and that was when i realized okay if i create a team and that's where it started off as i can create a team we can actually impact more people we can do more and that's kind of what it was it was more about okay how do i leverage more time of other people to grow something to be bigger and i realized too like they say it takes what ten thousand hours to master something i got to that ten thousand hour point a long time ago and for the record i don't you never truly master stuff if you if you think you mastered it and you don't need to learn anymore you'll end up dying eventually i'm always in a state of constant improvement but i realized i had enough knowledge and enough about me to be able to help others so that's why I now have agents is because I want to be able to give other people, I have, a, I have a brokerage that has agents and we have employees because I want to be able to give other people a place they can be proud of, a place they can come to work of and work to and have a goal to work towards they can be proud of and gives them fulfillment as well. I just, I don't know. It's kind of, I don't say it's rare, but it's like, it sounds kind of corny because so many people are out for themselves. So me, it was like, oh, I live a pretty good life. How can I create a community around me that can also have a good life and kind of work towards the greater good? It was, that's really what it's been about. It's about having a community, I think. Yeah, I think that's a very different mindset than I see with most real estate agents, right? They're putting their their name out there, this personal brand of, of themselves. They have their name kind of plastered around it and they don't have a team like you've created. So talk about that first step to say, I'm going to bring a few people in with me that vision that you created and, and got those people bought in to where you wanted to go. Yeah, I think that the first thing is filling a void, right? So I realized that time and skill set. So I knew that there were some things I wasn't the best at. So that was a lot of building a team too from a staffing perspective. So, okay, how can I make sure I fill and plug these holes I'm not as good at to give a better experience for the client overall as well? Because that's important. You want to make sure you give them a good experience. The, the first step really was getting an assistant that could help with the admin stuff because I knew that if I freed up my time with paperwork, I could go out and meet more people, 
not just close more deals, but work on building a better system. I figured that out and I was like, okay, well, we got the admin side of stuff figured out, the transaction coordination. And then it was marketing. We need to figure out marketing. Marketing takes up more time than most of the things. And I'm not, I have ideas, but I don't have to implement them. I can't, I'm not great at videoing things or taking pictures or coming up with certain plans. I have the idea, but I don't have to actually implement it. So the next step was to get a director of marketing. And then that since then has grown into, now we have three people in a marketing department. I now then needed to go out and get another agent to help with some of the deal flow we had. So we now have, at the moment, two more agents, have a transaction coordinator and then uh, a chief operations officer basically now who is in charge of basically the business as a whole and making sure that things are kind of ticking along. So I can focus on the on clients, I can focus on the sales side and the agents and kind of making sure we can keep growing in that area and then Ruben our COO really takes care of making sure the business is doing what it needs to do kind of day to day so yeah I, I just kind of realized that you can do more with a team and I realized that it was going to take a lot of investment and a lot of time to kind of get to where I wanted to get to you know as an end goal and yeah it's just it's crazy I mean I, I wish I could really pin it down and go step by step but that's really the overall view it's just I need to build this out with good people to start with everyone I have here is are, are great people um, that could fill voids that I had and this is kind of it's kind of grown organically in a way don't get me wrong there's intentionality behind the steps that we take but it just kind of it just is this organic thing that keeps evolving the way it needs to and as it needs to so yeah, yeah it's just kind of iron sharpens iron mentality of, okay, we're not very good at running operations. Let's get somebody that can help us there. Or we need somebody to help us with our marketing. So bring somebody in there and build a group where you can leverage the best skill sets that Elliot has. And then the rest of the team can do the things that they're really good at to create one big unified team. Yeah, yeah exactly. Last time we met, you mentioned you took a couple of days away to think about vision for the organization. And I know you mentioned that you have this team value, right? Yeah. Where the acronym is be great. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about how you and the rest of the team created the vision for where you want to go and some of those team values that kind of make you who you are. So there's, I read a book called vivid vision, uh, back in, it would have been the tail end of 2022. I think it was or midpoint 2022. And it's a, a book that basically is for business owners, founders, anyone who's anyone who's trying to create something basically business wise. And it, tells you to write basically a document that talks about how your business looks three years from the date you wrote it. And that is, that was the one of the hardest things I've done professionally is to take, I'm, I'm quite analytical. So I had to remove the, the how and just come up with the what. And that's what that document was. It was the what, what do you want your business? What do you want your team to look like? So I created the vivid vision because one of the biggest pitfalls in a lot of businesses, small, medium, large, is that you know, the, the team members and employees, whatever you want to call them, don't understand the vision. They don't understand the bigger picture. And that's where a lot of businesses go wrong and they end up with turnover is people don't understand they just come to work and do a job. They don't understand the kind of the bigger, higher reason. So that's the reason why I did it so that my team could understand, hey, this is what I'm trying to build with you guys. This is where we need to go. We rolled we rolled that out, um, you know, officially to some extent the end of 2022 and kind of finalized stuff in 2023. At the same time I rolled that out was when we kind of rolled out our values. And I remember we sat down for an hour, just over an hour as a team. And we basically sat down and figured out, okay, what does what do we embody as a group? Like what are the best parts of what we do? And that's kind of how we created our values, really. I would have said it's 80% of our team that put it together. 20% of it was me refining certain things to make sure it kind of flowed the way we needed to. But it was a team effort. And it's a lot easier to hold everyone accountable to those values when we decided that's what our values were as a team. So many businesses don't have values or so many businesses wait until too late in their 
and their development have values and all of a sudden you have a culture that maybe isn't the best because it kind of just was allowed to do what it wanted whereas when you have values you look at every day it reminds you of how you need to conduct yourself and, and what you what you stand for basically so yeah and i think you know you taking a step back to say this is the vision i want but incorporating the team into building those team values to where they all feel like that is part of who we are and it's not top down elliot saying this is where we're going it's we all believe in the vision that we've kind of created together. Let's go out and execute it. So a couple of the ones you mentioned that I think stand out are one, always execute. Talk to us about that. Yeah. Always execute. So I'm going to pull these up. It's going to, it's going to be, say what you do, what you say. So it was it again, uh, read it out to me. It's going do to what be, you say do you want to do, do when yeah, you say, do what you say, you when you say you would do it. So I, I have, so we have, we have the two words. So it's like a verb. An, an actionable verb and then we have a sentence that kind of embodies it so that way it's easier to kind of remember but basically yeah do what you say you're gonna do when you say you'll do it it doesn't even seem that hard to figure out nowadays because so many people say they're going to do something and don't do it that's enough for us to set ourselves apart is by just doing what we say we were going to do it stops you being lazy because you do what you need to do to start with and it sets you apart because so many people just aren't doing what they say they're going to do there's, there's nothing better than a promise fulfilled, really. Do you know what I mean? Like I said I was going to do something, Luke, and I did it. Do you know what I mean? I, I promised you we were going to do this, and we, we did it. We sat down and did it. it, it so many people just say, oh, yeah, let's, let, let, i got to get on the podcast or whatever it is. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll get back to you. No, we sat down and said we're going to do it. You know what I mean? We committed to it, and we're going to do it. And that's, that's important to me is making sure you do what you say you're going to do. Your word is your bond, you know? I feel like it also builds this confidence in, in you, right? Either way, right? If you say something, then you don't do it, then your own internal trust that you're going to fulfill anything you set out to do, your goals. It's not important to you. No, it's as much between the individual and the individual as is the individual and the client or the individual and the vendor outside wherever it happens to be. Yeah, I mean, that's part of the reason for me I work out and I try and do it in the morning is because that's the hardest part of my day. I've kind of had that battle with myself. Same thing. Promise yourself you're going to do something. Yeah. You know? If I say I'm going to do a podcast a week and I don't, then I'm like, well, am I actually doing this podcast or what am I actually doing here? Right? So that's why, you, you know, you stay up late and you push, you push them out and you get it done. Next one on the list was exercise transparency. And this one is no bullshit. bullshit. Be, Be open, open and honest. honest. Yeah. So it's self-explanatory. Yeah. Like any anything that's hidden, like any anything that needs to be known in a team that's hidden, it's going to get found out eventually, especially the way you know, real estate transactions work and just real estate in general. Um, people are generally speaking okay when you screw something up. If they know. If they don't know, it becomes an issue just honesty and trust are just important things you know in everything but especially in business it, it, it's, it's almost self-explanatory if you're going to show up and make a mistake that's okay we can fix it but we can't fix it if we don't know yeah. and we're going to find out anyway so let's just be open honest let's get ahead of it the more ahead of things you are as a business in general the more you can prepare for different things going wrong the quicker you can react and the better the overall outcome is the, if it's screwed up it's already screwed up so let's figure out a way to fix it but we can't fix it if we don't know so yeah one thing kind of on that same vein about being honest, when we talked at lunch, you mentioned that, you know, this year it's been, it's been tough, right? The market's been a little bit different and, you know, maybe the, the sales haven't been quite as high. And so you've reinvested some of your own personal funds back into the, into the business and you've let the team know that you, you're bought in on the vision of where you're going. You believe in the team, but you also want them to see that side of it as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fine line because you don't want the reason people, the reason people, align with companies they take jobs the way they do versus starting their own business a lot of it is to do with security for a lot of people they want to make sure they're coming to a place where they know they can get a paycheck they don't have to take the risks i've always explained to, to my team it's my problem as a business owner some of the things that i go through and i know i made that decision but the reason i'm telling you we're doing certain things or i've decided to make these decisions is so you understand i'm bought into 
because it's bigger than just me owning the business i'm bought in too so yeah I, i've been very transparent there's been times where i've had to make decisions where i didn't you know do things personally because it wouldn't have made it the best financial decision for the business and i don't do that to guilt anyone or for them to think oh well i kind of get that you're the only you should do that it's yes i should do that but i'm doing it so you guys understand i'm 100 percent in like i'm in this for you guys like a lot of businesses out there especially in real estate when interest rates started going up last year and even before then in covid a lot of real estate businesses and teams i know cut people loose like right away they're like oh they looked at the balance sheets they're like oh this doesn't look good i gotta stay profitable i gotta take home my money i'm not saying everyone but there was a lot out there and they just got rid of people i didn't do that and i never will do that unless we unless we went entirely bust because at the end of the day as a real estate agent still I, my ceiling for income and potential is always going to be higher than, you know, probably most of my employees, but my employees, they don't have the opportunity necessary to go out there and make more money. Not everyone has the skill set in our team to be able to do that. So it's my responsibility as a leader and as an owner to make sure they're taken care of until I absolutely couldn't do that anymore long before me. I can take care of myself, but there's people on our team that would struggle to take care of themselves if they had to do it on a whim like that. So that's kind of, that's kind of why we are the way we are yeah, and the way why, why I'm very transparent in, in, in those things. Does that help foster transparency within your team when maybe somebody has a, a, me a mess up or something goes wrong? Are, yeah. are people sharing that here? Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I guess you don't know what you don't know. So sure. if there are, if there are issues, if there are issues that I don't know about, I guess I don't know about them, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're pretty quick here to act. And I, and I, I think I set the standard to an extent because, you know, I, I let guys know when I make make mistakes. We have different systems we use where I've made mistakes. I did it today, actually. I didn't tick a box on one thing that needed to be done in one of our CRMs that helps move a transaction along. And I said, hey, sorry, I was a day late on that. That was my fault. I overlooked it. I mean, it kind of starts with me, I guess, too. But, I mean, it, you could also see that on the audit trail. I didn't tick the box. So I can't really hide it because we've got to found it out anyway in the yeah. end. So, yeah. Yeah, so it's been a whirlwind for you with, with THG Real Estate, right? Yeah. There's been a lot that's happened over the last couple of years. If someone out there is looking to start their own business, reflecting on what you've learned over the last few years, what would you say? You have to have absolute conviction. You have to truly believe that whatever your goal is and your vision you set out to do is you're going to achieve it and you can't waver from that. You can have bad days, I still have them. I mean, especially right now, you know, we're still trying to grow through a time where real estate volume's down significantly and that has its own headaches. But the one thing I'd say is you have to have complete conviction whatever it is you set out to do is going to happen and work to the end and you cannot waver from that if you go long periods of time where you're not sure it'll eat you up and it will affect your decision making so i'd say conviction's the biggest thing and i don't even know if you can teach conviction because you have to know deep down within inside yourself is this you know deep down within inside yourself if that's the right thing for you if you're on the right path so that's why i say you have to have conviction you have to believe that that's what it is and if you don't believe it don't even bother getting started on it if, don't, if you don't think it's your calling you don't think that there's any longevity in it save yourself the pain because it's gonna be a lot harder to work out you know in the end yeah that makes complete sense so what's next for thd real estate uh what's next for us continued growth i think i mean that's you know if you're not growing you're dying they say you know we're 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 in the process right now of expanding our team which for us means you know bringing on a few more agents um, the right agents the right fit agents that understand the value of what we bring and also align with our values and, and care about the profession and how they carry themselves you know, above all else, it's not just about money here and bringing people in to make money. It's about improving our team, growing and having people align with us that, you know, for the long term, that understand that benefit. So just continued growth more than anything, improving systems to make the client experience better. Of course, that's, you know, one of the main things. But yeah, we're, we're really about to go through and are going through continued growth right now on yeah. that side of things. 
one thing I do see in my mailbox all the time is your face. <laughs> You're big in the community. <laughs> I try so to be. outside of, you know, focus on selling houses and, you know, helping, helping people with that process, you know, how are you giving back to the community and being part of the community? Uh, we try and do as much volunteering stuff as a team and then individually as well. Um, the, the, the way I try and give back the most, I think my conscious effort at giving back is I try and connect with as many people as possible, particularly younger people that, we're probably in the position I was in. I actually just met with a guy yesterday who I see great potential for in his future in a completely different field who I hadn't connected with in over a year. I was like, I need to connect with him and see how he's doing and just see if there's anything I can do to help him. So I try and I try and make it about quality versus quantity, if that makes sense, and try and build genuine connections with, you know, particularly younger people and just figure out what I can do to help them. And it's always about just trying to bring value. Whenever I meet with anyone. I try and meet, you know, have have you know, coffee dates with people at least once a week in my kind of my sphere, my circle, and just bring value and make people feel better. That's kind of my way of giving back. We're working on stuff as a team, different events that we can do. We're looking at like different financial literacy classes, things to collab with different universities and schools and just things, ways that I can do it. So it's still, I think there's a massive, there's actually a lot of room for improvement in that. I'll be quite honest with you. I think there's ways that I can definitely improve and we can improve as a team. But for me, it's about just having quality connections and doing what I can to bring value to people on an individual basis more than anything, you know? Yeah, just fostering those relationships mm -hmm. and, and adding value. That makes sense. Yeah. So pivoting a little bit away from talking about THG real estate, you've obviously done some really cool mm -hmm. things there. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, mindset and the way you think about things. Obviously, you've gone through periods of... I would say maybe self-doubt or this imposter syndrome. What do you think allows somebody to navigate through those periods effectively? Maybe if they are experiencing, you know, trouble or self-doubt in their own, in their own mind. I wish I knew. I wish I knew an answer to that. What's That's a good question. What's, what's helped me? Cause what? we all have it, right? I, I have it myself where there's some days where, you know, I'm, I'm doing this, this podcast and I'm like, man, what am, Am I off base? What am I doing? Here? I think surrounding yourself with good people and like mentors is really important. Try and find people that have either done what you've done before or have experience in a similar field is really, really important um, because they can be like a, uh, a thermometer, almost like a temperature gauge and can give you objective opinions based on experience and kind of say, hey, this is how I did it. This is maybe how you want to look at it. Well, they can just look at it and say, you know, this, maybe we'll try this, maybe we'll try that. If they have experience in your field or, or a similar field, that's a way you can kind of accelerate through those hard times because you've got someone that's already been through it. So they, there's kind of a tried and, and true method. So I think having mentors is important and surrounding yourself in a circle of good people that are positive. You don't want you know Debbie Downers and people that kind of are, are negative or that will wallow. You need people that will lift you up. And also people that call you out on your crap sometimes too. You need people that will say, hey, you're slacking. And that's hard to put yourself in a vulnerable position. It's hard to be vulnerable to allow people to say that to you because I think we do seek comfort a lot as human beings. But I would say, you know, most of my close friends, almost all of them, they'd call me out on my crap and they'd say, hey, you know, you're not, you're not doing what you need to be doing. And there's small instances where I do that. By and large, I'm pretty good at doing what I need to do. But yeah, surround yourself with good people and mentors is the most important thing. Um, yeah. Have you heard of this concept of an action threshold? I've not, no. It's the concept that it's how quick you are to make decisions that need to be made, right? Are you able to go have the hard conversation that you aren't having? Able to make the decision for your business that you aren't having? People that are highly successful, they make those within an hour, right? If somebody says, I'm going to get back to you end of week, you're doing it end of day, right? So lowering that action threshold to say, you know what, instead of waiting a period of time to make this decision, 
and having that stress that I need to make that decision in the back of your mind, you just make the decision. And often if I find myself in a period of self-doubt about something, it's because I have unmade decisions that need to be made and making them allows me to move through that stress rather than having it linger in the back of my mind. Yeah. Does that resonate with you? It does definitely. And you have to make decisions quite quickly sometimes. And I, I'll never make a decision on a whim, right? I'm never going to make a decision just, oh yeah, I need to get out of the way. You need to look at it analytically, but you can overanalyze sometimes. We had a big one this year, really from a business perspective, where we had to look at basically lead generation. So beyond just organic relationships we have with clients, how can we you know, generate more leads, more opportunities? And we had to make a really tough decision regarding how we did a lot of our marketing because we had to make it more lead generation focused. And that meant you know, looking at some looking at numbers, looking at was and wasn't being done or delivered within our marketing and making some pretty big changes there. And but we made them relatively quickly based on having the data to look at. Because the longer you don't make a decision, you can kind of kill yourself if that makes sense. If you're stuck in a position where, for example, just business because it's the easiest one to relate to, I guess where you're bleeding money and there's not enough revenue coming in and you know kind of what that revenue dial is, but you have to make a hard decision to get that revenue to come up. What are you waiting for? It's not going to get better. It's going to keep getting worse. That's the best analogy I can draw, which is somewhat similar to kind of how the sales have gone down, how we need to change our lead generating to give us more opportunities. So yeah, I mean, you just, you, 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 it's not going to get better by waiting a lot of times. So yeah, hundred percent. I mean, that makes complete sense the way you packaged it. You do have to be quick to make decisions, informed decisions, there are gut decisions you have to make sometimes. When it comes to business, at least, there's a lot of analytics. Generally speaking, if you're running your business the right way, you can look at stuff and figure out right away. I might have some tough decisions to make here, you know. Have you have you recognized that as you've grown, that your decisions have to be more well thought out? And as a result, you have a decision work or decision framework that you use to say this is how we're going to work through this important decision for our business. Yeah. Yeah. Decision. Yeah. The, the more, the more complex a business becomes and the bigger, I think, yeah, there's definitely more checks and balances because the decisions I make now affect nine other people. Whereas it used to be me and maybe one assistant. So the effect is a lot more on others. So yeah, definitely. That's why you have different people in different places. We have someone in charge of making decisions for marketing. We have someone in charge of making decisions for operations. And then I'm kind of in charge of making decisions for the sales side of stuff like an agent's. But I still have a check and balance. I still go to our COO, who even though I'm the owner of our brokerage, THG, I'm the owner. When I am when I have my broker hat on as an agent and as a broker, I go to him to make sure I'm making the right decision. So yeah, we have we have kind of three wings and really it all stops and starts with Ruben as far as a lot of the decisions we make because you have to have that person who can kind of decipher the difference. Yeah, I used to be able to make decisions right away and whether it was good or bad, what happened happened. Whereas now we have a check and balance to make sure it goes through another person who understands the overall. So yeah, even I, I rarely now make a decision on my own, rarely, unless it's a, a very obvious one. I do not make any business decisions without consulting Ruben or Greg or whoever is related to that before we make a decision. Otherwise you can make bad decisions quite easily. And it's tough too, because if you look at those decisions you make, usually you don't see the results. It's kind of a lagging indicator, right? Those things you decided six months ago, they're just now coming to fruition. So being able to take a step back, which as a real estate agent, you don't necessarily have to. You're just kind of going, I want to sell houses. I'm maybe planning out some people that I'm kind of peppering relationships with. But as a business, you have to further take a step back, plan out a little bit further, not necessarily so much, as you've mentioned it before, in the business and more on the business with your decision making. So it's definitely a change in mindset for sure. Yeah. It's, it's very strategic now. Very, very strategic because it affects a lot of people other than myself. Yep. As you've had more success in 
your career and your life and starting this business, have you felt that that's changed your relationships at all? The people that are super close to me, I guess because they're still close to me shows that there's not change there, but there are some people, you know, through my life that I would have been close with, you know, years ago that I'm not as close with now. And it's not a judgment on them or, or me holding myself, you know, on a pedestal or whatever, but there's friends I've had that maybe I'm not as close with because our values don't align anymore. And it's not because they're bad people or because I'm a bad person or I'm better or they're better. You go through seasons in life where you change and you adapt and not everyone goes through those same periods and you end up in, in different places. So I definitely have found myself um, with a smaller circle probably over the years, but the ones that matter know and they're, they're always going to be there. But yeah, there's definitely people that have been around that aren't anymore because our values don't align or they're just not on the same thing. And as I mentioned before, you need to make sure you have that tight circle and people are uplifting you and it's positive. And if it doesn't work to that end, then you have to be careful. I mean, I fortunate enough, my family are all great, but I know some friends that have been, you know, high achievers or successful individuals that unfortunately have had to limit their time with family because their family even were no longer aligned with them and and, and because they grew up in situations where maybe they weren't, it wasn't as positive. And, and sometimes you have to kind of like cut the cord on some of those things, I think. I've been very fortunate my family's not that way, but I've got lots of friends that have had to make very, very tough decisions around friends and family, uh, mainly, you know, family where it just wasn't serving them the way they needed it positively, you know? Right. You go through those cycles, right? All the college friends that you had, maybe you were doing certain things with them. They're just not doing anymore, right? And I know in my personal life, I've experienced these kind of phases where, you have an old friend group and you're kind of working your way into this new friend group that have more of the values that you're trying to seek out as you continue on your self-improvement journey. And maybe in between you're feeling a little bit alone, but you have enough confidence in yourself to say, you know what, I'm going to get there. And so you, you continue to reach out and build those relationships at the higher level, but have to say goodbye to some people. And it's, it's a little bit of a grieving process, right? Because you're changing and you're having to say goodbye to people. And one interesting frame that I saw before is everybody that says, oh, it must be nice or, you know, lucky. they are, they are grieving because the person that they knew you to be is also dying. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's, so you think about it from your lens, but it's also from their lens. That person they knew, the person they loved is, is different. It's all, yeah, it's all perspective. Yeah. It's all, it's all how everyone looks at their own situation because even though I, in my head, I might be changing for the positive, the person that I was hanging out with 10 years ago that hasn't changed or is doing something different they're like oh you've changed and you're worse so it's all it's all perspective and you have to be i think empathetic to that and, and and understand that to an extent and still be there you know when you can be um you know i i never there's people i definitely talk to less but it's not because i don't like them it's just you're in, you're in a different spot you know yeah, exactly you know? and as you've gone through that phase life priorities just change right not necessarily just friendships, but just overall, right? You have to spend time to make sure the business is successful. And so for you, has it been a struggle for you to balance the things within your business and your outside life? Or how have you managed to prioritize your life effectively to work for you? It's always tough. A balance is a work-life balance or whatever is it's tough. I don't think it's really, a, there's, not a, there's not a balance. There's not like a perfect balance. I know that for sure. I think I do do a good job for the most part. But there's been sacrifice, but you have to be willing to sacrifice. And when you have a, a, a bigger vision of what you want, 
it's a lot easier to make those sacrifices because you have that vision in your head and in that mind. One of the biggest regrets I think I had, I had not regret, sorry, that's the wrong word. It's not regrets. One of the biggest things that I think bothers me and it has since I left because I grew up in England. I'm still very much English. I'm not even a US citizen. I've got a US passport. I'm English. Is I left England at the age of 18. I'm 20 years old now. It's been, sorry, I'm 30 years old now. I wish I was 20. Wow. I left at 18. I'm going to say, yeah, I'm, gonna say I'm, I'm a big burly 20 year old. I left, I left England at the age of 18. I'm 30 years old now. It's been 12 years. I went back for a friend's wedding a few weeks ago and I realized how much I've missed in my friendships, in my, like my little sister growing up. She was, she was young when I left England. She's now a, a grown up. My parents are getting older. You know, I got friends that are getting grays or don't have any hair like me. And yeah. I got friends that have kids, you know, the second, third kid. I got friends that have been married, friends that are divorced already. And it, I realized how much I've missed. And I think sometimes I do look and I'm like, yes, this vision I have is great. And, it, and it's, it's always going to be the vision. So it's not changing. But I'm like, I have missed a lot, you know? And I think that was really tough for me. And it, it, I've suppressed it for a long time, long, long time, I think, having that realization that I've missed a lot. So I'm definitely working. That's part of the way, that's part of the reason why I'm building a team I am, to kind of give myself some more time and more flexibility in certain areas of the work life so I can be more present, you know, and make up for some of that lost time. You know, my parents yeah. aren't getting any, any, any younger and my sister's not. I've got friends back home in England, some I hadn't seen in almost 10 years when I went back. So yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think... By virtue of being in another country, there's only so much I can do to balance that. But it definitely made this last trip back home to England was probably the most poignant I've had. Not in a bad way, it wasn't negative, but it made me really realize, damn, like I've missed out on a lot of different things here. I won't change it because I live a great life and you know, you make the decisions, but that was a really, really tough trip. Not 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 negative, it was just like, wow, like I kind of realized time's going by fast and I need to do everything I can to kind of make it the best I can, you know? Totally. Yeah, no, I've felt that same thing in my life where you kind of just go on with, with the things that are in front of you, right? You're chasing that next promotion. You're, you know, you're looking to start your own business. You're doing all these things that you think are going to take you to that next level. There's a lot of things you put to the side, right? Working 80, 90, hundred hours a week. I was not spending as much time as I could with my daughter when she was two, three years old, that time where you just never get that back. And so that concept of, of time and, and missing out on that time, at some point in your life, you have to make that decision, right? Where are you going to prioritize it and living with the consequences that are a result of it? Yeah, yeah you've got to be willing to make that kind of negotiation with yourself. And I think, you know, that's where a lot of people that have conviction end up being successful. They know what the sacrifice is and they're willing to make that sacrifice. And, you know, I'd like to think I'm at that point. Like I know what the sacrifices have been and what they are going to be. And as tough as it is, I am at peace with it, you know, because I've seen it. I've seen the things I missed out on. So, yeah, you have to know. You've got to know what the price is. There's a price to pay. So and It's not always black and white. It doesn't mean that you have to make that same sacrifice for the rest of time, right? For me, you know, I got to the point where now I'm able to shift my priorities a little bit. I ruptured my Achilles earlier this year, and it changed the way that I'm thinking, right? And some, so sometimes you can say, you know what, I've been a certain way for 10 years, 12 years. But now I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna shift that up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. There's, def there's definitely defining moments for sure. Yeah, there's defining moments for everyone. You know, and I just went through another one a few weeks ago. So yeah, yeah. So there's this concept for successful people, and this is Alex Hermosi's decision-making framework. It says that there's three traits. The first is superiority complex, this confidence to keep going when others don't. The second is massive insufficiency. So this. Fear that you don't want to leave anything on the field. You don't want to not start the business that you know you're capable of. 
The last is impulse control, right? Not getting distracted by the money that you made as a real estate agent. Does that resonate with you? All three of those. Yeah, all three of those. I mean, any given moment when I'm left alone to think long enough, any one of those three will pop up in my head enough to kind of remind me. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think uh, impulse control has been the easier one to figure out, at least from a materialistic perspective. Like, yeah. I have a bigger cause now, you know, than I ever had. So I've got to be careful there, making sure I put money in the right places. I think, you know, the kind of the, the, the imposter side of stuff, that's every day. I mean, you sometimes kind of wonder, oh, am I doing the right thing am i is this what i'm supposed to do i still get that you know am i good enough and then yeah i'm always wondering am i doing enough i mean that's that's constant for me i feel guilty for i i i do feel guilty sometimes taking time for myself because i wonder is that right and i we all know self care is a thing you do have to take care of yourself but every waking hour i'm like okay how can i make this team better what can i do i mean it's constant it doesn't go away and it probably never will go away, which is hard to kind of deal with. But I'm constantly thinking about this team and this business and what we can do to be better constantly. Yeah. And I think that the trust you've built with your team to start to offload some of those things that maybe before you harbored yourself will allow you to then say, you know what, I have a great team. I don't need to make all these decisions. My team can make some of those decisions and I'm able to then focus on continuing to grow the business in certain ways. I, I think it scares some of them, not all of them, because yeah. a lot of people and i've had this experience too both athletically and in business a lot of people go through experiences where they're not trusted by bosses or superiors and they kind of are micromanaged and i would say i'm almost the opposite i might be too loose sometimes and i think that kind of scares some of them sometimes depending on the situation but i always say i wouldn't have you here if i didn't believe in you didn't think you could make the right decisions so you know, I, I try and be i try and take i've honestly learned more from the bad managers and bad leaders in my life than some of the good ones because there's been unfortunately a lot of ones that weren't that great i've always said i vow to not be like them don't get me wrong i'm not perfect i make mistakes every day but i, I learned a lot from the bad ones you know yeah it's part of being in a team sport atmosphere right 11 people on the field, you all have to do your job in order for the team to succeed. And so you have to build this trust. You're not going to micromanage the wide receiver or the defensive back while you're the defensive yeah, lineman, no. right? Yeah, no, they do their I, job, you do your job, and everybody is successful. As I, 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 covered, I covered a running back out the flat one time as an almost 300-pound defensive lineman. And I was like, yeah, I, I got no business ever, ever covering. <laughs> I didn't see any pass breakups on your stats. Uh, uh, yeah, there's no pass breakups, but it was Colorado State. I remember you were, it was this one play we had. It was that the linebacker would blitz from outside to in. And I was defensive end on that play. And it was just one formation that if they lined up with the running back that side and he peeled, I had to go with him. And we practiced it all week. It never came up. And then in the game, it came up. And I realized, I was like, oh, shit. Like, this is the one. Yeah. And this guy runs at least a 4-5 probably. And I'm like, I remember just hightailing out there. And I was like, yeah, but to your point, yeah, I'm not I'm not covering DBs. So that's where I'm not filming myself. And I'm not coming up with marketing plans, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. We're going to pivot to our last section here, rapid fire questions. Okay. First one here. One book you would recommend everyone reads now. Okay. For, for, for business owners, I'm, I'm going to do two. I'm going to cheat Perfect. here. For business owners, Vivid Vision. Number one, number one book that will figure out most of your problems as far as we need to go. Second one um, would be Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink. Great um, book, yeah, great book. Second one, what keeps you excited about what you do and what brings you the most joy? 
knowing I have a vision and seeing the vision. Like I know it's going to happen. I see it clearly every single day and just working towards that. I mean, that, that I wake up every day and I know what it's going to look like. And I just, that's what I work towards. I'm excited to see that come to life. That's, that's it. That's what drives me okay. business-wise. Third biggest lesson you would tell your 25-year-old self? Patience. Have patience because time goes by quick. So no matter what you're stuck in and you're kind of worried right now about, oh, is this going to happen? Is this going to come true? Or do I need to go and do something else? Just patience. When you look at the most successful people in life, for the most part, they become masters of what they do because they stuck they stick at one thing and they take patience in it, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's tough today with the instant gratification world we live shiny in. Shiny objects in yeah. man. It, it, it's, it, it's still, I, I still, shiny objects still come across my desk that I look at, but I have to remind myself, nope, that's not, in line with the vision, so don't even entertain it. Yep, exactly. Fourth, tell me something that other people value that you do not. <laughs> I think like clout, if that makes sense. I know it's kind of a, a, a broad word. A lot of people want kind of the the recognition or fame or like Instagram kind of gratification. I use Instagram as a platform, but I think a lot of people, especially in our industry, they kind of live for that. Oh, I am that agent. I'm that guy. Don't get me wrong. You have to have that mentality to extent to be able to do your job. But that outward kind of like flashiness of like, yeah, give me, gas me up. That I don't really value that. Like it's got a place and if that fulfills you, great. But I'm about giving value using my platform, giving value with what I have. Versus just the kind of the look at me. I think people kind of put too much value on themselves to an extent. People don't realize just this is my communication degree kind of background. People, like they maximize, right? And they think that they are more important than they are. And we're not that important as individuals. Like we're not. So have a good impact. That's all I can say. We're not that important. So become important by giving value and being impactful, you know? Yeah. I think the the biggest parallel I would say between the corporate workplace that I work in is this concept of a quiet worker versus a loud worker. A loud worker is going to go out and say, look what I've done. Look at all these things that I've done. Look at my team. Look at my people. When in reality, it's all a facade, right? Where a quiet worker says, I'm going to come in. I'm going to do my job. I'm going to add value to my team. I'm going to advocate for my people. My metrics are going to prove themselves. And I don't care about being boisterous. That's the way you, that's the way I feel like you are, right? You come to work. You want to set your people up for success. You want to be known as somebody who adds value and not necessarily someone who's just flashy on social yeah. media. I mean, that was my Boise State career. Like, yeah. you know, I was, by the end, I was a starter. I started a lot of games at Boise State, contributed a lot. And one thing, Coach Harson, actually breakfast with Coach Harson, I mean, a week before we had our lunch, probably about five, six weeks ago, I think. And I was chatting to him. He's back in town now. And I you know, kind of thanked him for all the things he'd instilled in me mentally because that was my Boise State career. He always talked about uh, being a high, high output, low maintenance guy. And that's how I've approached everything. And that's how I approach a hiring process and our team. Like, don't get me wrong, you're important. You are very, very important. But we want people who are low maintenance, high output. And that's how my career was. Like, you're never going to look me up and see a ton of incredible, amazing articles about me or whatever. But I did my job when I was called upon. And that's how I still live my life, even as a founder or owner of a brokerage. Like, I'm not bigger than me as an individual is not bigger than this whole team. The same way it wasn't at Boise State. Not one person can be bigger than the team. Otherwise, you're compromised at that point. Yeah, it's that it's that chart that you've seen. It's like high trust, medium output. Yeah. Right? That's more important than low trust, high output. Yeah, there's a, there's a sweet spot for sure. Yeah. Fifth, what is your priority? Innovation or perfection? <sighs> That's a good one. So uh, there's two sides to me. I have, this pot, I have this innovation side of me that loves creating and loves solving problems. But then I get really pissed off when we don't necessarily do some things right. 
And I, I bet there's people in here that would say, like in my team that would say, oh, he's a perfectionist for sure. But there's some people that say innovation because they see me solve problems. So as far as what I prioritize, I would have said I'm, I'm, pre I'm pretty equal. Like I innovate and then there's a time for the perfection. I innovate, we come up with an idea, then I'm trying to perfect it. So it's, it's a cycle. There isn't really a fo one focus. It's a cycle. It depends what mood I'm in a lot of the time too. Like I, I think my innovation is dictated by my mood more than my perfectionism is, if that makes sense. I have to be in the right mood to be innovative. I'm not innovative if I'm not in the right frame of mind, whereas perfectionism is with me all the time. I'm always trying to perfect stuff, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, innovation comes to you when it comes to you, right? You can't force it. You can't sit in a room and say, I'm going to innovate today. You'll just be walking down the street and you'll be like, oh man, that's a great podcast topic. Or this is a great way we should pivot our business. Exactly. And then perfectionism, I think is, like you said, it's always in the back of your mind. Yeah, it's a dialed in. It's a little bit more focused to perfectionism. Yeah, I like that. Six, your leadership style. Are you vocal or do you lead by example? I would say both. Yeah. From a sales perspective, as I said, I'm still working with clients, still mm -hmm. selling. I still am at the top there as far as my production sales wise. But then... When I talk about being vocal, I have to as a leader and as a mentor to the other team members and agents, I still am out there telling them and giving them information. So I hate to sound cliche and sound the same tone with each thing, but it's a balance. It is, I would have said 50-50 really. I mean, I probably would have said at this moment in the business, I'm probably leading more by example just based on some of the output things, but I try and be as balanced as possible. I think there's a time and a place for both, right? There's a time when you need to be vocal and then there's a time where you just need to dig in and, and lead by example. So maybe it's time dependent. Last one here, shoes or cars. You have to choose one. You either have the nicest shoes and you drive a Camry or you're you're driving around with the nicest cars and you're wearing Walmart Shack shoes. Nicest cars. Nicest cars. Yeah, don't get me wrong. The shoe, yeah. the, sh the, shoe, the, shoe, the shoe obsession was after the cars. I would have been obsessed with cars before I had a license. I, I, could, I had shoes since day one, you know what yeah. I mean? But uh, don't get me wrong, I like my shoes, but no, I'm a car guy through and through. Like, I I could be homeless and I still try and find something nice to drive. Like, I just, cars are in me. Like, and that's the other thing, too. A lot yeah. of people, I have this conversation with people. They they say, well, you always talk about not being flashy, but you got some nice cars. And I explain, my cars happen to be flashy because fun cars and nice cars to drive tend to be a little bit more flashy. It's not because they're flashy. Mm -hmm. I've always loved cars. So, yeah, it's got nothing to do with money or that. It's just, I love a good car. It's just the way it is. And good cars aren't cheap. So, what size shoe are you? I'm going to send you some Shaq Walmart shoes. 15. 15. Hey, I'll wear them for one day for you. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, man. Well, that is wrapping up our episode today. Are there any final thoughts for our audience? Anything else you would say for people listening no, just, in today? To find something you love and just attack it is what I'd say. Yeah. Find something you love and attack it and life will figure itself out otherwise. So, yeah. Love that. Appreciate you taking the time today. It's been great chatting with you. I'd love to do this again when we get a few months down the road, maybe next year, see where we're at. Thank you. Keep going. Thanks, Luke. Appreciate it.